the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. As we head into Hour 3, this last day of August, August 31st, 2021, I'll repeat what I said in the first hour about Joe Biden's speech today. Um, It's increasingly odd to watch him and the Secretary of State not take questions. Where the heck is the Secretary of Defense? Can anyone remember a briefing from the Defense Department? Boy, when Afghanistan was in the news originally, you couldn't have enough briefings from the Pentagon and the and the and the and the and the, and the, um, and the Secretary of Defense. Maybe in a sense, maybe in a sense, we should be grateful because we're being spun. Someone asked me the other day, "Is Joe Biden doing this deliberately?" Is he is is he is he harming America deliberately? Is he surrendering de- surrendering deliberately, or is he clueless? I it's it's I don't think it's deliberate. To be honest with you, my best guess is they wished this wasn't on their plate. But here's the thing about it: today, Joe Biden gave a speech. Watch it for yourself if you want. Go to the White House website and read the transcript if you want. It was wholly inadequate to where we are, wholly inapt to after we've left Afghanistan, which is where we are today. Gone. Not there. We as a country. We have fellow countrymen there. We as a country are not there anymore. And the speech he gave today is the justification for us to get out. That's what the speech was today. It was exposing us to his thought processes on why to get out. Politically, maybe this was the best decision for the White House as the kind of speech the president should give. So that theoretically, I assume the thinking goes, people will, people's emotions and thoughts about the importance of getting out will overcome, take over their views about the poor, tragic fiasco we left by the way we did get out. Perhaps that's the thinking over there. But if he's speaking for the ages, if he's speaking for history as he likes to remind us we are living through, the speech was a chronological. It was the speech that should have been given weeks ago. Not after we've left, not after the fiasco of the way we've left, not after leaving Americans behind, and not after leaving in the midst of allies, civilians, and American soldiers being slaughtered. This speech was not up to that news cycle. That is the news cycle we are in now. Out of Afghanistan, going forward. A speech on why we got out, we've been treated to any number of times, heck, we even mostly agree, by and large, with the notion of getting out. But the difference between a president and a cipher, you know, memories run slow. That's the wrong way to put it. Memories run unevenly. 
Memories run unevenly. And while an awful lot of people are awfully happy we got Orange Man out, are we glad we have Dim Gray in? I'm glad, I suppose, for those who were perturbed by angry and bitter tweets that they don't have to read them anymore. Though I don't know what happened with not following someone you disagreed with or muting them. But have you traded in one president for another? Are you going to tell me when we celebrate President's Day that these two kinds of presidents, when it comes to our place on the stage, when it comes to Afghanistan, are in the same category? Listen to he who tweets mean. The war in Afghanistan. My original instinct was to pull out. And historically, I like following my instincts. But all my life, I've heard that decisions are much different when you sit behind the desk in the Oval Office. The consequences of a rapid exit are both predictable and unacceptable. No one denies that we have inherited a challenging and troubling situation in Afghanistan and South Asia, but we do not have the luxury of going back in time and making different or better decisions. We will not talk about numbers of troops or our plans for further military activities. Conditions on the ground, not arbitrary timetables, will guide our strategy from now on. America's enemies must never know our plans or believe they can wait us out. I will not say when we are going to attack, but attack we will. Our troops will fight to win. We will fight to win. That was President Trump when he was president talking about his plans for leaving Afghanistan. And you don't allow announced dates or troop levels, something we couldn't seem to be talking enough about for the last month. Last Sunday, you had another president of the United States who ended his speech on Afghanistan this way. I, I really think it all works. I'm not, I'm not supposed to take any questions, but go ahead. Mr. President, on Afghanistan? I'm not going to answer Afghanistan now. Not going to answer Afghanistan. That was two days ago. And he walked off the stage after mumbling things no one here can appropriately or even inappropriately decipher. Another friend of mine called me today from Washington, D.C. He's had children in the military. He himself was not, and he is a um, political consultant. I don't, I don't I, you'd know his name, but I don't have the liberty to disclose it. And he said, what are, what are you thinking today? And I said, I'll tell you, to be quite honest, I don't know that there's more to be said. We can continue to berate the maladministration of this White House, the State Department, the Defense Department, the national security team, and, of course, the top leadership of the executive. We can continue to do that. I'm, I, I do it every day, and nothing's going to stop me so long as they remain on a path bent on destroying America and, 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 uh, and, uh, and adapting and, uh, and accepting social, socialist nostrums. 
course we can continue to. I, I don't know. I don't know what more at this point can be said. We've been taught to learn from history so that, as the famous quote goes, we don't repeat it. Joe Biden himself likes to tell us that he is a student of history. He was present during the evacuation of Saigon and at various times was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee as well as Judiciary Committee. He didn't need to study history to know what transpired in history and he didn't need to study history because he was present when Richard Nixon resigned too to know that lying to the American people from the White House is simply unacceptable. Will you give me his interview from two weeks ago with George Stephanopoulos? Just one line that I think most of us should keep in mind because it's the only Sunday show he did. That meant he wanted it to mean something. This was him with George Stephanopoulos, excuse me, George Stephanopoulos two weeks ago. The commitment holds to get everyone out that in fact we can get out and everyone should come out. And that's the objective. That's what we're doing now. That's the path we're on. And I think we'll get there. So Americans should understand that troops might have to be there beyond August 31st. No, Americans should understand that we're going to try to get it done before August 31st. But if we don't, the troops if, will if stay. If we don't, we'll determine at the time who's left. And? And if, there are American force, if there's American citizens left, we're going to stay till we get them all out. American citizens. If there is an American citizen left, we will stay until we get them all out. He corrected from American forces. You heard that. You heard that. He self-corrected from American forces to every American citizen. I suppose that's true if you only count up to a certain number. And it obviously has to be a number higher than 200. The first 200's lives, blood, future to this president was either lied about or is cheap. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. It's that time of year where the sun is scorching and our predictable monsoon season is back. And that means it's time to talk about your roof. And if it's time to talk about your roof, it's time to talk Trades Unlimited. The damage being done to your roof is constant. Heat, wind, rain, and even dust bring daily challenges to your roof and over time cause significant damage as a homeowner you likely don't even know about. If your roof is 15 years or older, the underlayment must be checked now. At 15 years old, that underlayment dries out, cracks, and then becomes susceptible to all sorts of leaks. Some you see, some you don't. Maybe, for some of you, it's time to consider a foam roof. For those of you who have a flat roof, the benefits of foam are insulation from the heat, help silencing the noise, and, of course, stopping water. If you already have a foam roof that's five years old, it's time to have it inspected and recoded. The brutal Arizona sun beats on it, and the coating starts to get little bubbles or holes. It's disintegrating. Before the leaks begin, give Trades Unlimited a call at 480-483-1775. That's 480-483-1775. Or visit TradesUnlimited.com. That's TradesUnlimited.com. 
last thing – well, I don't know if it's the last. Another thing I wanted to say about Afghanistan in retrospect to my fr- – in uh, reference to my friend's question, what more is there to say? I don't know how politically long it will attach to Joe Biden. I don't know. National security crises tend to attach to a president. They tend to. The question is, how long? And then the other question becomes, what gets you through it? This administration seems to have the political science of thinking that the more crises, the better. Because we can play one against the other for the purpose of distraction. Do you think the border problem has been solved? It has not. Do you think the crisis at the border has in any way been ameliorated from when we were, our hair was on fire a month ago and two months ago and three months ago? It hasn't. Simply because it's not being reported on or that the White House isn't being forced to talk about it doesn't mean it isn't happening, isn't still a crisis. I'll give the Arizona Republic some credit today. I think it is the very first day. I think I'm right about this. I'm willing to stand corrected. I think it is the very first day in over a year and a half that COVID was nowhere mentioned in the A section except in an op-ed by one of their columnists as an opinion piece. I believe it is the first day, the first day. May it continue. I'll have more to say about that in a second, too. What do I deduct from that point? I deduct from that point what I deducted from 9-11 almost 20 years ago, which is this country has the potential to be serious and it has the potential to be unserious. For several months after 9-11, we knew what it meant to be serious. We got serious. We also got along much better. There's something to that, too. There's something to frivolity and divisiveness. There's something to letting the unimportant culture dominate the important parts of your life that creates both isolation and division. There's something about that. That when we're not united in a common purpose, we, of course, are its obvious opposite. Divided in uncommon purposes. That's the import of unity. Has this president done anything to solidify that unity? Or does he continue, as he did today, to blame previous administrations? I went back to something called the 9-11 Commission. Do you remember it? It was big news after 9-11. Hearings, report, live coverage, took up a year of our lives. I'm glad we did it. I'm glad we did it. We learned a lot, including from the 9-11 Commission report. Which, by the way, as you've heard me say, when Joe Biden neglects to say the reasons we went into... Afghanistan were in part 
to overturn the Taliban, throw the Taliban out of power. He suppresses that. He elides that. He doesn't mention that because he turned Afghanistan over to the Taliban. He just says it was about bin Laden and al-Qaeda. I checked my memory over at the 9-11 Commission and uh, was reminded that what I said is eminently true. That the debates over the authorization for use of military force and every speech George W. Bush gave back in 2001-2002 was in fact about al-Qaeda and, bin Laden, and bin Laden, but also the Taliban. Also the Taliban, which got something like 180 mentions in the full 9-11 report. But do you know what the first recommendation from the 9-11 report is? The first recommendation? How to prevent the United States from being attacked again? Do you know what the first recommendation is? I'll read it to you. The strategy to prevent terrorism and, terror and, and to engage in counterterrorism should first be that terrorists no longer find safe haven where their organizations can grow and flourish. Rule number one, don't give them safe haven. It's often invoked, it's a line from Spinoza's, that nature abhors a vacuum. I quickly add, evil and terrorism thrive in them. And, of course, that's what bred the toxic confluence of the Taliban and al-Qaeda in the late 90s and early 2000s, along with a series of feckless responses to bin Laden and al-Qaeda's earliest attempts to strike at America. The letter of Sirik Matak still rings hard. The students of history at 1600 Pennsylvania seem to have forgotten it in full. I'll read it when we come back. It's not that long, and then I want to do a little more with you. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. It almost sickens to read, but if Joe Biden's going to forget history, I'm going to remind of it. In April of 1975, when we were fleeing Indochina, John Gunther Dean, the ambassador, U.S. ambassador to Cambodia, offered our allies in Cambodia safe exodus a safe exile from their country. We would take them in. We would protect them. He wrote a response to the ambassador. His response, Sirik Matoks, wrote, I thank you very sincerely for your letter, dear excellency and friend, and for your offer to transport me towards freedom. I cannot, alas, leave in such a cowardly fashion. As for you in particular, for your great country, I never believed for a moment you would have this sentiment of abandoning a people which has chosen liberty. 
You have refused us your protection, and we can do nothing about it. You leave us, and it is my wish that you and your country will find happiness under the sky. But mark it well that if I shall die here on this spot and in my country that I love, it is too bad. Of course, because we all are born and must one day die. I have only committed the mistake of believing in you, the Americans. Please accept my faithful and friendly sentiments, Prince Sirik Matak. He was dead a month later. He was dead a month later. We abandoned our own once before. We abandoned the Kurds several times. And now this leaves the question, will we ever be able to operate in that region again with the allies on the ground necessary to execute any such operation? Who would be foolish enough to affiliate with an entity or an organization that hands your name and address to the enemy once they decide they are done fighting. We're going to have a lot of stories. Right now, this is the main one, quoting from the Wall Street Journal. Thirteen years ago, Afghan interpreter Mohammed helped rescue then-Senator Joe Biden and two other senators stranded in a remote Afghanistan valley after their helicopter was forced to land in a snowstorm. Now, Mohammed is asking President Biden to save him. Quote, hello, Mr. President, save me and my family, Mohammed, who asked not to use his full name while in hiding, told the Wall Street Journal as the last Americans flew out of Kabul on Monday. Don't forget me here. Muhammad and his wife and their four children are hiding from the Taliban after his years-long attempt to get out, of get out of Afghanistan got tangled in the bureaucracy. They are among countless Afghan allies who were left behind when the U.S. ended its campaign on Monday. Muhammad was a 36-year-old interpreter for the U.S. Army when two U.S. Army Black Hawk helicopters made an emergency landing during a blinding snowstorm. snowstorm according to Army veterans who worked with him at the time. On board were Senators Biden, Kerry, John Kerry, and Chuck Hagel. As a private security team with the former firm Blackwater and U.S. Army soldiers monitored for any nearby Taliban fighters, the crew sent out an urgent call for help. At Bagram Airfield, Muhammad jumped in a Humvee with a quick reaction force from the Arizona National Guard. Bless you, Arizona National Guard, working with the 82nd Airborne. God bless you, 82nd Airborne, and drove hours into the nearby mountains to rescue them. Muhammad spent much of his time in a tough valley where the soldiers said he was in more than 100 firefights with them. The soldiers trusted him so much that they could sometimes give him a weapon to use if they got in trouble when they got into tough areas. His selfless service to our military men and women is just the kind of service I wish more Americans displayed, Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Till wrote. Muhammad's visa application has become stuck. Stuck. Not even the man who saved Joe Batten's life in Afghanistan is being, repaired, is being repaid by the words of Joe Biden or the actions of him. I understand why he doesn't want to use his last name. And I'll understand in the future very well 
while some other Muhammad may not want to help an American. It will cost you your life. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Welcome back. Um, I wanted to shift a second, if I could. I hadn't said anything this week about Larry Elder's campaign for governor, and I promise I would not and will not cease speaking out on behalf of it. Even if you can't vote in California elections, although I suspect we have a lot of Californians here who can, even if you cannot, you can help the campaign. The Democrats are throwing at least $60 million, at least $60 million to message that Gavin News to put forward the message that Gavin Newsom should not be recalled. The Republican Party itself is not stepping up. And Larry Elder, Elder himself has raised about a fifth of that. I believe he will still do it. I believe he will still win. He needs help. Electelder.com. If you can't vote for him, send a dollar to him. If you can send more, send more. Heather MacDonald has weighed in on the Larry Elder race. The possibility that Larry Elder may win California's recall election is generally acute anxiety in the mainstream media. And the, act, and the activists left. Elders' foes are responding with their favored means of destruction by playing the race card. Never mind that the nationally syndicated talk show host is black. A series of opinion columns and editorials have accused him of being a white supremacist, or at the very least, a shill for other white supremacists. Elect Elder and California will reinstate Jim Crow, Sidney Kamlacher, a Democrat from Los Angeles, a state senator Democrat from Los Angeles, has warned. The media have focused particularly on elders' views about crime and policing. The self-described sage from South Central maintains that criminals, not the police, are the biggest threat in the black community. According to Elder, the false narrative about lethal police racism has only led to more black homicide deaths. When you reduce the possibility of a bad guy getting caught, getting convicted, and getting incarcerated, guess what? Crime goes up, he said recently. Elder also rejects the charge that white civilians are gunning down blacks, as LeBron James maintained in a tweet during the George Floyd riots. Quote, we are literally hunted every day, every time we step outside the comfort of our homes, LeBron James said. Close quote. Elder has a different take. Quote, if a young black man is eight times more likely to be killed by another young black man than by a young white man, you can't tell me systemic racism is the problem. Such statements are anathema to the establishment and the left, deeply invested as it is in the idea that blacks have little agency in the face of ubiquitous white racism. Few subjects are more taboo in elite discourse than the elevated rate of crime among blacks, as it suggests cultural pathologies that at the very least complicate the victim narrative. To the left, black crime is little more than a racist 
fiction. L.A. Times columnist Gene Guerrero claims that the crime statistics Elder has cited over the decades to support his views are misleading, if not outright false, casting black people as unusually crime-prone. Black people are not more inclined toward violent crime, nor do blacks disproportionately victimize whites, Guerrero wrote, citing Columbia law professor Jerry Fagan and other criminal experts. Fellow Times columnist Erica Smith sneered that Elder keeps trotting out statistics that purport to show that black people are particularly prone to murdering one another. Close quote. Unfortunately for Elder's critics, the statistics showing vastly disproportionate rates of black crime and victimization come from some of the less favorite sources. CDC data shows that For example, the homicide victimization rate for blacks aged 10 to 34 was 13 times the rate for whites. That disparity is even greater now, given the record-breaking increase in homicides since George Floyd's riots. Those black victims of homicide are not being killed by cops, and they're not being killed by whites. They are being killed by other blacks. In Los Angeles, blacks this year have committed 46% of homicides whose offender is known, even though they are just 9% of the population. Whites make up 28% of Los Angeles' population, but have committed 4% of homicides, mostly involving domestic violence. 4% have created 28%, 9% have created 46%. These data reported by the LA Times mean that a black Angelino is 30 times more likely to commit a homicide than a white Angelino. Homicide data are the gold standard for crime statistics. Alas, for the LA Times, the statistical conclusion that blacks are more inclined towards violent crimes, at least as compared to whites, as Larry Elder says, is indisputable. On and on, she goes to defend him in her piece, but this is my point about Larry Elder and taboo. Things we're not allowed to talk about. Things that drive we conservatives batty but feel censored, a priori censored, or preemptively, peremptorily cut off from engaging in these discussions because we feel we'll be shamed or canceled, called a bigot or a racist. And yet somehow deep down we feel that this might be one of the most important issues in our lives, in our politics, and in our culture. Do we not feel that way? Do we not feel that the black-white divide and the charges of racism and the problems inherent in welfare, education, and crime in our racial issues is not maybe one of the biggest problems in America, and we feel like our side can't discuss it? And if we can't discuss it, we can't do anything about it? If you feel that way, that's the magic of Larry Elder, because he feels that way too and discusses it with no fear, with no fear. And that's but one reason why he, being the governor of California, can be a political earthquake for not just the rest of the country, but the world. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Thank you for spending some of your afternoon with us. We don't take any of you or it for granted. The times are tough. 
times are tough and we'll get through them together. But when you think about the divides in this country and the divisiveness, ask yourself from what side it's coming from. Ask your side Ask yourself what side it's coming from. Why is Joe Biden in every speech on Afghanistan blaming President Trump and the Afghan military? Why is he blaming, in other words, an American and our allies while putting in good words for the Taliban, which is a radical Islamist institution that has no problem working with the likes of al-Qaeda? and other terrorist organizations? Why is his wrath generated at Americans and our allies? This is, as he said today, he's right, a four-administration war. President Bush, President Obama, President Trump, President Biden. It's true. A lot of terrible things have been done, and a lot of very good things have been done over those four administrations when it comes to Afghanistan. Why is his wrath only targeted to one? And why is it not targeted to the enemy? And why are his speeches scolding Americans and not warning the Taliban the way President Trump did in the audio I played earlier this hour when he was president? You can have a president of the United States who is also your commander in chief and makes you proud to be an American and says to the world that, Yes, indeed, America is back, but saying America is back isn't quite enough. Where did it ever go? Where did it ever go? In Joe Biden's mind, America left its moral sense over the last four years. To mine, it's about to take a permanent vacation if it doesn't turn around real quickly. I'm Seth Leibson. Until tomorrow, Bill, thank you. Anthony, thank you. Everyone else, you all. Thank you. God bless him. Class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.